0: Welcome to Human Circus. It happened one night at the monastery of Saint-Léger-de-Champeau. It was around Matins, or just before that, I think... I looked up from where I lay and saw someone approaching, saw them come up to the foot of the bed. I looked at them and drew back deeper into my blanket. He was shriveled and small, but fearful to look at. He was thin-necked and gaunt, wide-mouthed and sharp-chinned, with the beard of a goat, a mess of hair, and teeth like an animal's. His back was hunched, his eyes deep-set, and his face lined with wrinkles. The figure leaned in towards me and struck the head of the bed with his hand. He spoke. You shall not remain here. I opened my eyes, realized first in relief that I had been sleeping, and then in horror that the figure was still there. He leaned even closer. Close enough that I could see the frame of his body shake. Close enough that I could hear his teeth grind. Then he said it again. You shall not remain here in this place any longer. I was frozen for only a second more before I hurled myself from the bed. I rushed through the monastery to the altar. And hurled myself to the ground in front of it, and Father Benedict. I lay there in terror a while, thinking up all my sins and praying with desperate fervor. So it is recorded, or close enough in the writings of Rodolphus Glaber. Hello, and welcome. My name is Devon. And this is Human Circus Journeys in the Medieval World, the podcast that covers medieval history through the stories of its travelers, usually. And it is a project that's supported by a Patreon. If you would like to, if you are able to, you can do so and enjoy early, ad-free, and extra listening at HumanCircusPodcast.com. Thank you, all of you who have already done so. And a special thank you to my newest patron, Joe. Thank you very much. And now, back to the story. Back to the stories. Today, it's a little break from the current run of Prester John episodes. It's that time of the year again to dip into the Chronicles for a Halloween mini-episode. Time for some Halloween-appropriate tales. The stuff of folklore and myth. And it will be stories, plural. By the nature of the way these were recorded, the way these were written, these were not modern novellas that I'm working from. They're often quite short, fleeting tales, almost fragmentary to our eyes. One more bit of business before we get going. I should give due credit to Andrew Joines, whose book, Medieval Ghost Stories, an anthology of miracles, marvels, and prodigies, I have relied on for some of these stories, and in which, if you're interested, you can find much more of this sort of thing. All of that out of the way, let's begin. We do so with Gervase of Tilbury. Born in England in the mid-12th century, Gervaise was truly an international individual. He was educated in law at the University of Bologna, and he witnessed negotiations between Frederick Barbarossa and Pope Alexander III. He served both Henry II of England and his son also Henry, along with the Archbishop William of the White Hands, King William II of Sicily, and Otto IV, sometime king, sometime holy Roman emperor. It was for that emperor that he wrote his Otia Imperialia, Recreation of an Emperor. The text contained a chronicle of the world as he knew it. As well as a geography. And there was also a third book, which included much that we might broadly term marvels. The world that Gervais depicted was not one concerned only with this king or that, their lands or their doings. There were other things, too, that were much less of this world. Things of those beyond or adjacent, breaking through into ours. Things like spouses returning from the dead to keep their promises and strike down their partners who had broken theirs. Things like caskets in the river that had been pillaged by thieves and gently spun there in the stream like beacons of the crime until that which had been wronged was righted. Things like dialogues with the dead, through which the living learned of purgatory and the world beyond this one, things like lamias and sprites, the former were said to somehow enter people's houses in the night to peek into this corner or that container, to tip babies from the cradles, and sometimes also. To trouble the other inhabitants of the house as they slept. The latter made their homes in the deep places of the rivers, and they were, one can only say, mysterious, at times inexplicable even. It was recorded that on the river near the city of Aral, near where Gervais lived for a time, there was a place where sprites were often seen to show themselves below the surface when the night was clear. At that place, there had been a disturbance years before. Someone, some thing, had shouted from beneath the river, calling out for three nights in a row, and a human-like figure had been seen to rush to and fro beside the water's edge crying out that the time had passed, yet no one had come, their voice seeming to grow more desperate as each night went by. Finally, after the third night, a young man was seen to run into the river and immediately disappear below the surface. He wasn't seen again, and the voice was not heard again. The Sprite's could take human form and walk in public unremarked. But the forms they found perhaps more useful than that were those of cups or rings, the sort that might be seen by women or children who bathed in the shallows, the sort that might then be used to drag them down into the depths. It was mostly wet nurses to raise their young that the water sprites wanted, And that was who they took, drawing them in from the water's edge, bringing them down to their realms below, and keeping them there for years in great palaces below the river banks, before eventually releasing them, richly rewarded, back to dry land, to speak of what they'd seen. One such woman had been washing linens by the bank when she was taken when she was seen reaching out a little too far for a wooden cup that bobbed along just out of reach, and she was whisked away. When she was seen again, not until seven years had passed, her children and husband scarcely recognized her, so transformed she was by the experience and by time. The returning woman spoke of what had happened of her life in those years with the sprite that had taken her. She told of how, one day, she had been given eel pie to eat, and how she had rubbed, absent-mindedly at her face, getting grease from the pie into one of her eyes as she did so. As unappealing as eel grease in the eye might sound, this particular eel grease had a most unusual effect. Or perhaps the usual effect. I haven't tried. Either way, she found that after that, she could see more clearly through the water with that eye. And on her return, made another discovery. She was walking in the market one morning when she saw the sprite. When she recognized the sprite. Which she should not have done. Should not have been able to do. The sprite was shocked, for no human should be capable of such a thing. It demanded to know with which eye she could perceive it so clearly. And she answered. She told it all about that eel pie, the grease, and which eye it had gone into. Hearing this, the sprite did not hesitate. It reached out and gouged out that eye, and went away satisfied in the knowledge that now again, no human could possibly know it by sight. Its anonymity, among those of us who walk about on dry land, was once more secured. And you might wonder what Gervais himself thought of all of this. A well-educated, well-traveled man of an aristocratic background, and an expert in canon law. None of that Made one immune to naive credulity, of course, never has. But he was hardly a figure of limited horizons or life experience. And we do get some reflection from Gervais as we turn to our next story, which he introduces with some thoughts as to what it all might mean, as to what the Lamias might really be. Of these figures, or demons, of Greek mythology, he said that maybe they were nothing but empty visions, illusions brought on by a disorder of the humors that badly affected certain people while they slept. Maybe instead, they were demons issuing forth from the souls of sinners, which gave them some kind of substance. Maybe their name came from the Latin term, meaning to tear apart. Or maybe from a word for minor Roman household gods. Whatever they were, they were, he maintained, not human, but only gave the illusion of being so. Whatever they meant, he could only conclude that God could be unfathomable. He still told the stories, though, because that ineffability was very much part of the point of Gervais's third book. The world was full of mysteries, full of marvels, full of miracles. Among all the political chaos and conflict around him, there were heretical and perhaps even devilish attacks. And there was God at work in the world. He had made. That was partly why he still toyed with the idea that there were beings who might flit through the night air of the countryside, bringing trouble where they went. Poltergeist stuff, we might say, entering houses and eating food, fiddling with the lamps, and shifting infants and children about while they slept. It didn't really get deep into horror territory. Not for us, reading from afar. The infants and children in question weren't actually murdered while they slept, which is reassuring. But they were known to disappear from their beds or cradles, and screams in the night and empty cradles would, I am certain, be very much horror territory. In Gervase's telling, there had been an archbishop who had, as a little boy, had this happen to him, and he'd been found in the puddle where his mother had washed her feet before bed. So it often was, with the children in question thankfully being safely discovered in the morning, but still rather troublingly being found outside on the ground, with the door of the house still sealed shut. On a much lighter note, Gervais has his own experience to contribute here, but not one of childhood night terrors. Instead, he'd had a most disturbing incident in the wine cellar. It had proved absolutely impossible to draw anything but air from previously full casks. And then, later, they were found to be brimming and bountiful, so that nothing was lacking. I feel like there may have been other explanations for this one, than Lamia's, that this one might have been a little less than fully unfathomable. But after this quick break, a few more stories. Our next source for the medieval supernatural is the early 14th century, or maybe even earlier than that, Gesta Romanorum, the Deeds of the Romans. It was, you might not be shocked to learn, largely not about Romans. There actually were some stories of Romans or Greeks, but also all manner of other people, fragments that were gathered in from a variety of sources including, in a pleasing tie-in for this episode, Gervais of Tilbury. It was a very popular text, its moral lessons well-suited to preaching, and many copies were made. But they didn't tend to be exact copies. They contained this or that extra story, maybe lacked a few that were commonly included in others. It's really more of a family of texts, than a single unified document. As you might have guessed from all of this, the authorship, or curatorship, is not easy to pin down. Its origins unclear, but its impact is more measurable. The collection providing inspiration, and indeed stories, to people like Boccaccio, Shakespeare, and Chaucer. We'll start with a story sourced from Gervais. It's one of those cautionary tales about getting what you wished for. It all happened around a Catalonian mountain. And not just any mountain. This one was a prodigious source of silver, and there was gold in the sands at its foot. However, it was also high and treacherous, difficult to climb. Under the best of conditions, and at a certain point, absolutely unassailable, save for by one specific approach. Those who did reach its peak found a lake of black water, but what they could not see was the palace of demons, its gates never closed, or its invisible inhabitants. Those climbers would only know of the demon's presence if they were foolish enough to cast a stone into the lake. For then, the demons would become angry and show it with furious storms. Near that special mountain, there lived a farmer, a man of little patience, it sounds like, or else simply pushed the limit by the incessant complaints and cries of his daughter, who was young, perhaps even an infant. Parenting can be hard. At some point, it became too much for him, and he snapped in irritation, rashly wishing out loud that the devil would come and take his little girl. You might be able to guess what happened next. No sooner had he spoken than, of course, an invisible hand plucked his daughter away and carried her off. She was taken. And there was nothing he could do about it. Time passed, and the focus of our story moved away from our impatient farmer. Seven years passed without detail or remark as to the interim. Now the perspective shifted to that of a traveler in the region round the foot of the mountain. This traveler, passing quite close to the farmer's home, Perceived someone else coming the other way along the road. He was absolutely rushing along, and loudly bewailing his circumstances. Alas for me, wretched man, he lamented. What shall I do to rid myself of this burden? But he had no readily apparent physical burden. So the traveler asked him why he carried on in such a way. What was he on about? To his questions, the traveler was told that the man really was weighed down, just not with anything that could be seen. It was devils, he informed the traveler, devils that used him daily as a chariot. And so it had been for a full seven years, seven hellish years, all because of an unwary exclamation on his part. And I do wonder what this unwary exclamation was. An overtired, devil-take-you child is not hard to imagine. But a sudden outburst of, may demons make me taxi them about for an extended period, kind of is. The traveler was equally taken aback, though not necessarily by that detail. He just found it hard to believe the whole thing. He was incredulous, at first, but he heard that this fellow was not alone in his misfortune. There was a nearby farmer, too, our farmer, who had lost a daughter to much the same problem. The demons were tired of the girl, though, this human chariot had heard, tired enough of trying to instruct her that they wouldn't actually mind all that much if she was taken back. The farmer just needed to come up that mountain and get her. Now, the traveler did believe, he took seriously what he heard, and felt he probably shouldn't keep it to himself. He found the farmer still bemoaning the loss of his daughter, and he informed him of what he'd heard, adding the advice that the farmer should go right away to the mountain and in the divine name, demand that his child be returned. After some consideration, that's what the farmer did. Initially, nothing happened. But then, there was a great blast of wind. And when it passed, his daughter was standing over him. Quite a bit over him. She was tall and wild-eyed, with skin scarcely stretched over sinew and bone. There was no recognition on her face. She knew no language, and the farmer did not know what to do. He wasn't sure that he could bring this person home. So at this point, he decided to ask the bishop. And I don't know that he got any kind of helpful suggestion there. I don't know what happened to the daughter, because it's not in the story. Instead, the bishop took this as quite a different type of teaching opportunity. He told the whole story to the people of his diocese, cautioning against any rash verbal commitments, and emphasizing that his audience's adversary, the devil, was everywhere. As a quote, Raging lion, seeking whom he may devour, that he will slay those who are given to him, and hold them in eternal bonds, and torment and afflict, those devoted to him for a time. The bedeviled chariot man gets a mention here, at the end of the story, that he would remain ensnared for a long time still, but that his faith would finally see him freed. He would speak of a subterranean palace in the mountains, its entrance enveloped in a thick veil of darkness. And the story ends like this. Quote, Through this portal, the devils, who had been on embassies to various parts of the world, returned and communicated to their fellows what they had done. No one could tell of what the palace was constructed, save themselves and those who passed under their yoke to eternal damnation. From all which, my beloved, we may gather the dangers we are exposed to, and how cautious we should be of invoking the devil to our assistance, as well as of committing our family to his power. Let us guard our hearts, and beware that he catch not up the sinful soul, and plunge it into the lake of everlasting misery, where there is snow and ice unthawed. crystal that reflects the awakened and agonized conscience, perpetually burning with a mortal fire. Still nothing on the farmer's daughter, though, on what became of her. Did her farmer father really leave her up there on the mountaintop? Did she end up back in the palace of the devils, or did she find her own way to some happier life? I'll leave you to decide. I'll tell one last story here before we finish up, or report, not really being a story in the modern sense. But either way, it was quite definitely not a horror one, perhaps even less so than Gervais's magically emptying wine casks. It comes to us from Henry of Erfurt's 14th century chronicle, by way of that Andrew Joyne's book I mentioned at the beginning. It starts with a hand, a human hand. The hand in question made itself known in the year 1349, in Kierenberg, in what appears to have been an inn. The hand in question was pleasant and soft. The hand was attached to nothing. That was really the remarkable feature about it, that no arm extended from it, No torso beyond. And above it, no head. It was just a hand. An attractive one. And many came to see and touch it. Perhaps even a thousand did so. The hand had with it no body. But it did have a voice. A rough whisper of a voice. The voice of a man. Eventually, someone got around to asking who he was the hand gave his name as Renica, Fielding questions, he informed the crowd that appearances to the contrary, he was a Christian man, like themselves. And like them, he was not alone. He and others like him, by which it's not clear he meant other disembodied hands, lived in the nearby mountain of Kirkenberg. Not on, but in. And not in the neighboring mountain of Berenberg. Those people there were bandits and brigands, Reynacca said. Not like the good and noble folk of his own community, the ones who dwelled in that other mountain, or, when in town, its houses, though only ever one per house. And could not more than one stay in a building, he was asked? Well, yes, he answered, but they did not want to overburden their hosts. That would be rude. Such consideration evidently was not shared by the more bodily humans of the town. Enthused by the presence of the hand, they crowded in and insisted on staying, so that spaces had to be made for them among the barrels of the wine cellar, as comfortable as could be in that situation and there was an uproar in the night, a panic born of too many people in too small and unfamiliar confines. But Reynika, the hand, soon dealt with this. It was their fault, he calmly spoke over their screams, for having so obstinately determined to stay. They should have known better. From his place on a barrel, he then spoke to those assembled at some length. It's not clear what of. On another occasion, when an unexpected guest put his host in the embarrassing position of not being able to provide food, Reynica urged that host not to be concerned. The hand arranged for food himself, producing wine, beer, bread, and meats for his host to offer. Reynica didn't get along well with everyone, though. The host's mother was no favorite of his, and he referred to her only as that evil woman. In stark contrast, he was extremely fond of one of the household servant girls. One day, he saw another servant, who he had been very friendly with, offer her an apple, and he harshly railed against him. The man objected, saying he had only meant to give her an apple, but Renica would not listen to such disagreement. The man had had much more in mind than that, he said. Rather oddly, he would later inform another man that he would one day make that man rich enough that he would be able to marry that servant girl. Perhaps he just thought that they would make a better match. Henry the Chronicler readily admitted that he was not sure that all of this really happened. Perhaps, he says, it was merely a phantasm, an illusion, the product of overly active imaginations. But I am quite entertained by this particular ghostly character, with his absurd blend of consideration, generosity, and a bit of belligerence. May the story of the Hand of Reynica be a true one. I hope you've enjoyed this Halloween mini-episode and these, we would say, paranormal stories of another time. I'll be back again soon, not with ghosts or spirits, but with more Prester John. And I'll talk to you then. circus will return.